Today is the last Sunday of the current Christian year, and next Sunday is Advent Sunday and the beginning of a new Christian year. And today is sometimes known as Christ the King Sunday. It is a day when we focus on the centrality of Jesus in our lives. Now, every Sunday, every day should have that focus, but the reality of life for most of us is not as tidy as that. If we say, Jesus is my king, what does that mean? What does that look like? What kind of king is Jesus? For the first time in many of our lives, with the passing of the Queen, we now have a king as head of state. Some folk will be perfectly happy with that, others not so much. A couple of weeks ago, during a walk about in York, a few eggs were thrown in the direction of King Charles and the Queen Consort, while a placard proclaimed, Not my king. In response to the egg throwing, some of the crowd proceeded to sing, God save the king. To many folks, the rule of kings is a historical anachronism. To many folks, the church, faith, Christianity should similarly be confined to the history, consigned to the history books. Jane Williams comments, today's passages might on a superficial reading simply be making the fairly standard point that Christ's kingship and authority are a challenge to most understandings, most human understandings of power. That's a good and important point, and one that needs to be made repeatedly, since we don't on the whole want to hear it. But the trouble is that they are now being read by a society that is in a terrible muddle about leadership. So you can't just hold up the standard worldly model of power and then contrast it with the biblical one because there isn't a standard worldly model of power. The problem of poor leadership is nothing new. The passage from Jeremiah 23 is a response to the behaviour and poor leadership of various kings and their officials, including King Zedekiah, whose name incidentally means righteousness of the Lord. Zedekiah hadn't lived up to his name in common with many other kings who hadn't lived up to their equally godly names. Too often these kings had been very poor shepherds of God's people, very poor leaders who had failed to reflect the values of God's kingdom. In Jeremiah 22 we read, this is what the Lord says, go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message here, there, hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says, do what is just and right. 
Rest you from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Clearly, that word was not heeded. And the people of Judah find themselves scattered and fractured and eventually carried off into exile in Babylon. In chapter 23, which we read, God declares, I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing. The days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. While King Zedekiah and co. don't live up to their names, Jesus will and does. In the message, these verses read, Time's coming, God's decree, when I'll establish a truly righteous David branch, a ruler who knows how to rule justly. He'll make sure of justice and keep people united. In his time, Judah will be secure again and Israel will live in safety. This is the name they'll give him, God, who puts everything right. Now, everything isn't sorted with a hop, skip and a jump. Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy of Jesus and reads, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Remember Jesus in John's Gospel telling the Pharisees, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. We recall the hymn based in Psalm 23, the king of love, my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. When we turn to today's gospel passage in Luke 23, 33 to 43, we could be forgiven for wondering if the God who puts everything right has seriously miscalculated and consequently has largely lost control of events. The king's throne has been replaced by the executioner's cross. This rebellious upstart has been relieved of his kingdom by his Roman masters. There is one supreme ruler of the Roman Empire, and his name isn't the Emperor Jesus. 
The pathetic, mocking charge is written above his head. This is the king of the Jews. The notice represents Pilate's grim revenge on the Jewish leaders who'd hounded him, who would never acknowledge anyone hanging on a repugnant Roman cross as their king. But ironically, Pilate was also proclaiming Jesus' royalty. George MacLeod, founder of the Iona community, warned against any tendency we might have to want to sanitize Jesus and distance him from us and the darker, untidy, painful parts of life. He said Jesus wasn't crucified on an altar between two candlesticks. He was crucified in a rubbish dump between two convicts. Similarly, Willie Bartley observes it was of set and deliberate purpose that the authorities crucified Jesus between no, two known criminals. It was deliberately so staged to humiliate Jesus in front of the crowd and to rank him with robbers. Jesus' detractors don't hold back. The rulers, the leaders sneer. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The Roman soldiers propose a mock toast of poor man's vinegar, unfit for a king's palate. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the convicts hurls abuse. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and does. The other convict points out what no one else has, that we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Remember in Jeremiah 22, the injunction, do not shed innocent blood. And supremely, Jesus' innocent blood is shed at Calvary for you and me. We struggle to get our heads around that, don't we? More often than we like to admit, we have sometimes even been numbered among Jesus' accusers. Or we have stood at a distance from Jesus. We have been spectators, slow to identify ourselves as his friends and followers for fear of perhaps uncomfortable repercussions. I want to read a short section from one of Adrian Plass's books, War of the Worlds. How to Avoid Leading a Double Life, and in particular the chapter entitled The Bottom Line, Positive Crucifixion? Question mark. So the crucifixion, could there possibly be anything genuinely positive about the crucifixion other than the trivial fact that the death and resurrection of Jesus has made it possible for us to go home to the God who loves us more than we can possibly imagine 
That's quite a positive aspect, isn't it? But what about the crucifixion itself? How did Jesus handle that three-year experience? <coughs> Here is something I find fascinating and perhaps very helpful. The Bible records seven things that Jesus said during that period, seven words from the cross. Here is the list. Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Luke 23, 43. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John 19, 26 to 27. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, this is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. John 19, 28. I am thirsty. John 19.30, it is finished. Luke 23.46, into your hands I commit my spirit. Amazingly, three out of the seven things spoken by Jesus in the course of this terrifyingly painful experience solve problems for other people. And a fourth one presented all, whole generations to come with a great gift and an immense privilege. He prayed for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him. He comforted the man on the cross beside him and promised him a future in paradise. Amazingly, he did a bit of social engineering for his mother so that she would not be left unsupported. And he allowed us to share and to take heart from that black moment when he felt alone and deserted by the one he was obeying with the sacrifice of his life. Plus, continues, if you want to be a truly authentic follower of Jesus, there is one main positive aspect of situations that are hurting me if I am willing to adjust my mindset. They are mission fields. They are places in which, despite what is happening to us, we are called to watch carefully for opportunities to facilitate the specific ingenious work of the Holy Spirit. We cry out, Lord, I'm being crucified here. And God says, I know. I know about crucifixion. I'm watching your back. And your soul is safe in my hands. Hold your nerve. Expect anything and everything. Help me. There's work to do. Whatever we're doing... Wherever we are, no matter 
if we are in the darkness or the light, whether we are suffering or prospering in human terms, we are presented with a mission field. In wholeheartedly embracing this responsibility, I suspect that we shall be allowed to contribute significantly to the ultimate victory in the battle for a genuinely Christian world. Paul, writing to the Colossians, assures them of the supremacy of Christ the King. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. Isn't that great? Leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, turning far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. You yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in that bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted and diverted. There's no other message, just this one. Every creature under heaven gets the same message. I, Paul, am a messenger of this message. I want, just as a weary reflection, um, to read a, a poem by Steve Turner, which is entitled, Christmas is Really for the Children. Christmas is really for the children, especially for children who like animals, stables, stars, and babies wrapped in swaddling clothes. Then there are wise men, kings in fine robes, humble shepherds, and a rich hint of perfume. Easter is not really for the children, unless accompanied by a cream-filled egg. It has whips, blood, nails, a spear, and allegations of body snatching. It involves politics, God, and the sins of the world. It's not good for people of a nervous disposition. They would do better to think on rabbits, 
chickens and the first snowdrop of spring. Or they do better to wait for a rerun of Christmas without asking too many questions about what Jesus did when he grew up and whether there's any connection. <laughs> 